I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow along in whatever version you have with you today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Solomon writes in the 23rd chapter of Proverbs, As a man thinks, so is he. Perhaps you've heard this line, which really captures the essence of that statement. If we sow a thought, we will reap an act. If we sow an act, we will reap a habit. If we sow a habit, we will reap a character. What we think really determines who we are. This is the reason that the Lord says in both what we call the Old and the New Testaments, He says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Because the mind is the instrument which God has given us to receive truth from Him and then to make the proper application in our lives of that truth so that we can bring honor and glory to Him. This text tells us in verse 2 that we are to set our minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. We seek what we set our minds on. When it's all said and done in your life or my life, our lives will be in one of two categories. Did we seek that which is above or did we make a practice of seeking that which is on earth? So let's consider these two possibilities, beginning with the second and then going to the first. What are the things on earth which are mentioned here in this passage of Scripture? Does it have to do with the physical world in which we live? No, it does not have to do with that. Here's the reason I say that. Because the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22, that... The world, believe it or not, belongs to us because we belong to Christ. The Bible also tells us in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. We know who he is. The whole world lies under the control of Satan. So, Paul and the other biblical writers use the term world slash earth in two different ways. The way that it's used here by Paul is the idea of the world, which is that system which Satan rules. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 that if the love of the world is in us, the love of God cannot coexist with the love of the world. We have to either love God or love the world. And then John goes on to explain what makes up the world. It's the lust of the flesh, that's our own selfish desires. The lust of the eyes, that has to do with things which we want, which we don't have. And the boastful pride of life, that has to do with our egos expressing themselves. Paul talks about this 
in a little different way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, in the last days there will be difficult times, and he gives the reasons for it. I'm going to use the three main reasons. One, because people will be lovers of themselves, people will be lovers of money, and people will be lovers of pleasure. Now, if you're thinking, you can see how those three things which Paul speaks of correspond to the things which John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2. Those things which make up the world. This is the devil's domain. It's his system that he rules over under the sovereignty of God. He's no freelancer. He thinks he is. But we know, as Martin Luther said, that Satan is God's devil in the sense that he has to give an answer to God for his actions just like we do. But let's think about those three things which are spoken of by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lovers of self. In the description of the aspects of the love of the world, there is the boastful pride of life. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and he talks about how we as human beings have a tendency to boast about certain things. And he concludes by saying... The thing that we only have reason to boast about is, do we understand and know the Lord? All other boasting is wasted. It's those things which are on earth which we boast about. Those things on earth are those things which are part of the world system governed by Satan. But they're also things which could be described as trivial. They are trivial pursuits. They are self-centered pursuits. Lovers of pleasure. Isn't that about self? Well, certainly it is. Isn't the love of self is obviously about the love of self, but also the love of money has to do with the love of self, too. Listen to what the Word of God says about loving ourselves. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Our lives are to be about other people. And more particularly, our lives, if they're centered where they need to be centered, will seek to glorify the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's comprehensive, isn't it? It covers everything. That should be the focus of our lives. But if we are lovers of ourselves, it's not the case. God speaks to Baruch through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Because God is going to bring judgment on all such expressions of self. What about money? Paul speaks about this and the danger of loving it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we could go to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus speaks at length about the impossibility of my loving Him and money at the same time. They are juxtaposed to each other. They're contradictory to each other. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and they also fall into harmful and 
foolish desires which lead to their ruin and their destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now notice, the Bible does not say money is the root of all kinds of evil. But the love of money, lovers of money, take something neutral like money and they convert it into something that's evil. Because it's about themselves. It's something in the world system that we get attached to and consequently we shift allegiance from the Lord to material things. Materialism is a problem, isn't it? For sure it's a problem. It's always been, always will be a problem in our lives. But for those of us who know the Lord, here's the good news. In the book of First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that same section that I quoted from just a few moments ago, the Bible says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So for us who know the Lord, if we're in a proper relationship with the Lord... We recognize His sovereignty in our lives. He's our King. The result will be that we can be trusted with material things which He's given to us to enjoy. And we enjoy them under His leadership. And therefore, they do not become tools for evil, but they become tools for good. We can actually enjoy them most of all when we share what He gives to us with others, is what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some of you, a few of you at least, are old enough to remember the name Jack Benny. He was a comedian back in the day in early television. I remember he had a show on, and I didn't like it at all as a boy. I thought he was pretty dull. And But he was a comedian, and he was known for self-deprecating remarks, he would caricature himself as a penny pincher. And he might have been a penny pincher. I don't know in real life. But he told the story one time, and this is somewhat humorous. He told the story about being held up at gunpoint. And the person who held him up said, your money or your life. And then there was an extended pause, no immediate response. And the thief was becoming nervous and anxious, impatient, and he said, well, and then Jack Benny said that he told this would-be thief, he said, give me some time, I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Well, we might say the same thing if we were rich, you know, had a lot of money. But we get too attached to our things, don't we? The love of the world, seen in the lust of the flesh, And the lust of the eyes, which amounts to greed, and the boastful pride of life, which takes so many different expressions. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. In Galatians chapter 6, listen carefully. Verse 8, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that also he shall reap. Are you aware of this law of the sower and the reaper? It's a universal law. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. The principle holds true for everyone. And if we sow to the flesh, he goes on to say, we will from the flesh reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, 
we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I was thinking of a story found in the book of 2 Samuel, the 13th chapter, when I was thinking about this lust of the flesh and the lover of pleasure. There's a man named Amnon. He was one of the sons of King David. He was a prince. He was a pretty boy, probably. He was a pampered child. And he was a selfish man. He was all about himself. He made a bad choice for best friend. His name, Jonadab. Jonadab was not only his best friend, he was his first cousin. He was David's brother's son. And these two boys had too much time on their hands. Amnon fell in love with a beautiful girl. And he became lovesick. He couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. The scripture actually says he was depressed when his friend Jonadab would show up at his part of the palace and welcome him to a new day. He would notice he was just lying there listless. He said, what's wrong with you? He says, I'm in love with Tamar and I can't have her. He was not talking about can't have her as a girlfriend. He was talking about he wanted to have sexual relationship with her. I can't have her. Oh, by the way, she was his sister. His half-sister, but still his sister, the daughter of King David. And so Jonadab said to him, I've got an idea. He told him what to do. He said, call your father David to come to your chamber and pretend you're sick and tell him, the only thing you believe that will make you well is for you to eat something that your sister Tamar can fix for you here in your presence with just the two of you in your chamber. Well, David got the message. He loved his son. He went to see his son, heard the request, sent a word to Tamar to come and do as his son Amnon wished. She came very innocently, unsuspecting of anything ill aimed at her. And the result was she became the victim of sexual abuse from her brother. And then the Bible says this. There's a lesson here that I don't want to get into, but you can draw your own application from it. The Bible said, after he had had sexual relations with his sister, who was a beautiful girl, she had begged him not to, but he went ahead anyway, forced himself upon her. And the Scripture says, he hated her more than he had loved her. Young lady... Beware of some slick-talking young man who would try to woo you into his bed. Even if he's a Christian, especially if he's a Christian, tell him, absolutely no, this is not what is for me. Well, Amnon reaped what he sowed. Do you know what happened to him? Her brother, her whole brother, her full brother, Absalom, killed him. David reaped what he sowed. This is part of what he reaped from his own lover, being own love of pleasure. Remember that story, right? And this story went on and on in the life of David's family. Lovers of pleasure. These are things that are on the earth. Trivial pursuits. Things that are self-centered. Which raises a very important question. Are we then... If we're going to set our 
minds on things above, are we going to be men and women who separate ourselves from the world? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, the Bible talks about the importance of we who know Christ separating ourselves from the world. And what that means, it doesn't mean we vacate the world. What it means is we don't get into relationships with people who are non-believers. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That has to do in marriage or in business or any other kind of relationship. We are to be people who do not follow that pattern. We need to be careful to listen to what the Lord says to us. But listen to what Jesus says in the parable of the wheat and the tares recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. When Jesus draws his disciples aside to explain the details of that parable, he takes each aspect of it. When he comes to the field in which the wheat seeds are sown, what he says is the field is the world. And that would be the world that we go into to sow the seed of the Word of God. The seed is the Word of God. So we have been called to be sowers of seed, the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this does not mean that we become monks or nuns. It means that we do what we're supposed to do by being what we are. And what are we according to Jesus? We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. So we go in and we illuminate the world because we are light. We shine forth like stars in the universe, holding forth the word of life, as Paul writes to the Philippians. And we are the salt of the earth. That is, we are people who change the very climate of every room we enter because of Christ's presence in our lives. And you will never know, if you walk according to that which is above as opposed to that which is on earth, that which is of the world, you will never know in this life what influence you have wielded for the Lord by simply being there if you are following the Lord. I never forget an illustration that my pastor used when I was just beginning to grow spiritually in my early 20s. He said in teaching some lesson, I don't remember what it was about, probably Romans 12, if my memory serves correctly. But he was talking about as believers, we are either thermostats or thermometers. Now, what does a thermostat do? It regulates the temperature of a room. What does a thermometer do? It only reveals the climate of that room, right? What kind of believer are you or am I? If we set our things on the things, our sights rather, on that which is on the earth, the world, then we're thermometers. But thermostats is what we want to be, correct? And we will be if we follow the Lord in the way He would have us to follow Him. Jesus says in John 17, verse 15, He says to the Father in His high priestly prayer, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. 
Jesus is saying essentially the same thing as he was teaching over in Matthew 13, 38. We are to be in the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you may remember when Paul is talking about disfellowshipping a man because he's living in an incestuous relationship. And he's proud of it, actually. And the church itself at Corinth was sort of patting themselves on the back because they were so open-minded and tolerant. And the Lord says through Paul, he says, you need to disfellowship this man if he doesn't repent. You need to have nothing to do with him. That sounds harsh. But what he understood, and what is true, a little leaven or yeast leavens and ruins the whole batch, as it were. But then, this is what Paul says, he didn't want to leave anything to the imagination. He says, I'm not talking about your disassociating yourself from non-believers. You have to continue to associate with non-believers. Why? Because they can't know Jesus unless they're rubbing shoulders with you, who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So do you understand, we're not called to be people who vacate the world. We're not to go into a monastery somewhere. We are to be people who bring the light and salt down the earth. Maybe you've heard people say this. I've heard it many times. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You've heard that, haven't you? And you know, unfortunately, that's true about a lot of Christians. We want to not engage with unbelievers. We just want to separate ourselves completely from unbelievers. We need to befriend people who don't know Christ. How did you come to know Christ? Someone who knew Jesus introduced you to Christ. I bet that's true of everyone here. You might say, oh no, that's not true. My parents... Well, your parents introduced you to Christ, right? (laughs) Yes, they did. And this is critically important for us to understand. Here's what I would say. You're no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. Unless you're setting your mind on things above. I remember reading years ago when St. Paul's Cathedral was being built in London. Some of you have been there. It's a beautiful piece of architecture. I think Christopher Wren was the architect. Beautiful piece. It took years for it to build. And it was in the day and time when there were street vendors in London. And there was an urchin urchin child, a little boy, probably 10 or 12 years old, and he was selling fruit, not necessarily that fresh. And he was just taking his cart up and down that thoroughfare, and he was in front of the cathedral. And he actually, as he was admiring the work, bumped into a pedestrian, and the fruit fell all over the sidewalk. The pedestrian, instead of scolding the boy, began to get down and, on his hands and knees, pick up the fruit and help put it back in the cart. And this boy was surprised. He had had similar situations arise in his life. And he'd always gotten some kind of rebuke from the person he had run into. And after they had finished putting the fruit back in the cart, this little boy looked up into the face of the man who was at least a foot taller than he. And he said, Sir, are you Jesus? Well, obviously he wasn't. Don't even know if he was a Christian. 
but the fact that he showed kindness to this little boy. You and I have Christ living in us. And Jesus wants to get out of us and care for people in the smallest of ways. To be loving toward other people. That phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Some of you have used that, talking about people who know the Lord. Do you know, you'd have a hard time convincing one of the tens of thousands of children this Christmas who will receive boxes, the only Christmas gifts they will get, probably, in the name of Christ through Operation Christmas Child. You would be hard-pressed if you surveyed carefully, did good research as to where most of the, what we call social institutions, started and who started them. You know who started virtually all the initial hospitals in the world, the orphanages in the world? You know who started them? Followers of Jesus Christ. You know if there is a disaster today, as we've seen so many recently in our own country, in Mexico and in the Caribbean, if there are disasters like today, like that happening today somewhere in the world, do you know who will be the first people to respond? Believers in Jesus Christ. Always. Always the biggest help comes in terms of monetary contribution and hands-on help come from people. Who know Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4 of Colossians for a moment. Chapter 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. I'd like to speak about three of these words here. The word grace. We know what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. But the word grace in this context, and it was used this way many times outside the New Testament, it really is the idea of being charming. Let your speech be laced with grace. Be charming. Not that we're trying to impact anybody, influence anybody to think we're somebody and we're so sweet and we're so charming and all that kind of stuff. What it means is that there should be something about the way in which we talk to people that would let them know that there's something different about us. We don't react to things that are ugly that they say to us or about us. I remember when I first came to El Paso in 1977. That's a long time ago, isn't it? And I was moving from Fort Worth and I was looking for someone who I could trust to cut my hair. I had a lot more then than I do now and I was more <laughs> careful with it than I am now probably. And I looked up in the yellow pages and found a man whom I thought would be the right man. I went to his shop. And you know what happens in, in a barber's chair. When you sit down, especially if you're the first time guest in that chair... The barber invariably says, after introducing himself to you, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, uh-huh. Hey, he went over and he picked up a Playboy, which was there, and he brought it to me. He said, I think you'll like this. I said, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want to look at that. I appreciate your offer. Do you know, I went to him for seven and a half years. He was a terrible barber, by the way. <laughs> I went to him for seven and a half years, and 
Every time I went, I bet he had something to say to me that was derogatory. But what the Lord gave me the grace to do was to always have a comeback that was not a put down to him, but I had a repertoire of jokes that were better than the ones he would tell me that were dirty jokes. It was awesome. And the other men in the shop would just guffaw when I would tell my stories, and he wouldn't. And that man had not come to Christ when I left here after seven plus years in El Paso, moved out of town for ten, came back. One of the things I wanted to do when I came back was to look him up. I looked him up. We had lunch. I was able to share the gospel with him. And in that intervening ten years, he had had bypass surgery. And he said, I have come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior during that time. Now, I'm not saying I had anything to do with that at all. We have nothing to do with people getting saved. That's the work of God. But we can do what the Word of God says is let your speech always be seasoned, be with grace seasoned. The word seasoned means zesty. You know zest? You remember zest? The soap? I don't know if they even make it anymore. I remember it as a boy. Made me want to buy a bar. It's supposed to make you smell better, right? Or taste better if it's a chip of some sort. Well, our conversation needs to be that kind of conversation. Seasoned, as it were, with what? Salt. I love salty things. I love popcorn because it has a lot of salt on it. If there were not salt, I wouldn't eat popcorn, I don't think. But I'd rather have salt... Salted popcorn than any other thing on the face of the earth to eat in terms of just sheer interest in that saltiness. We should have that kind of impact on people. We're not to be sticks in the mud. Well, these are the things on earth, the things of the world. What are the things above? Those are the things which are in direct opposition to the things that are on earth. Those things are super significant. There is no what they're essential. Let me just use that word. And you know that word's overworked, but if something's essential, it's absolutely necessary. These things that are above are essential. And they are God centered, not man centered. They're Christ centered, things above. If we look back now at chapter three, let's look at verse two again. Set your mind on the things above. And that would be, I think, the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? When Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He began by saying, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How might God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Through people like you and me, in whom Christ lives, in whom Christ reigns. Not just lives, but rules our lives. The result is that that happens. We become like Jesus Christ when we let Christ be our Lord. Jesus says in Hebrews chapter 10 that He came to do the will of His Father. His kingdom, the Father's kingdom, came.
came on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to live in us if we've received Him. And Jesus mediates His life through us as we make Him our Lord. Where is this kingdom? In us. When Jesus was approached by a group of people who wanted to know where the kingdom of God was located, you may remember what He said. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. That's the way most of the translators translate it. But literally, the word among should be translated within. So let's say it this way. The kingdom of God is within you. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. The kingdom of God is in me. How does that work? Well, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives where? In me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If that's not enough, look at Colossians 1.27 for just a moment. Colossians 1.27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ, where? In you, the hope of glory. So, the Lord Jesus lives in us. What is this kingdom like? It's where God rules. It is a kingdom, as Paul writes in Romans 14.17, that is not about eating and drinking. Rather, it's about righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll tell you what will get the attention of an unbeliever more quickly than anything else. It's not what we say. It's who we are. Especially in trying situations. When people who don't know the Lord see us at peace and full of joy in the middle of trouble, they stand up and take notice. And they will be like those people that Peter writes about who see the hope that is in us and they ask us for the reason why we are the way we are. Why we're not acting like they are. Where does this peace you have come from? Where does this hope you have come from? Where does this joy come from? And we can say with a smile on our face, I thought you'd never ask. It comes from Jesus Christ who lives in me. And people want to know that kind of God. And they can know through us if we have set our minds on things which are above. It's really paradise, isn't it? The kingdom of God. Eden, isn't that what Eden was before sin entered the world? Certainly that's what Eden was. It was paradise until Adam and Eve went their own way and ignored what God said. So how is this possible? Before we run out of time, we want to see how is this possible for us. First of all, it's possible if we know Christ. It's not possible for you if you don't know Christ. So you can just tune out now. If you know Christ, I'm serious. If you know Christ, it's for you. You have died. Isn't that what the Scripture says in verse 3? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The phrase is hidden is a word which was used in extra-biblical literature contemporary to the New Testament to describe the burial of someone who was dead. The pagan world had no hope. 
There are epitaphs written on tombstones which have been exhumed by archaeologists. And almost uniformly, there is no message of hope. It's all gloom and doom. When you're dead, you're dead. You're dead and gone. That's it. So how are we, men and women, if we know Christ, how have we died and been hidden with Christ? Well, I've already mentioned from Galatians 2 that we have been crucified with Christ. People who got crucified didn't live. There are only three documented episodes of where people were crucified and survived the cross. Two of those people died. Only one person ever, as far as we know, crucified and was able to live out what would be considered a normal life and die a natural death. But we died to ourselves, is what the Bible says. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17 and see how this plays out. The Bible says, Therefore, if any person is in Christ, what's true that person? Old things are passed away. I use that euphemism referring to Charlotte McDonald. She passed away on Tuesday. That means if old things have passed away, we died. The old Mike Woods died when he received Christ. If you received Christ, the old, and put your name in there, died. And you were hidden. You were buried. But the scripture goes on to say, if any person is in Christ, old things have passed away. But what has happened? All things have become new. Why? We are new creatures. We are new creations. We have been... We died, but we've also been raised. That's the other thing. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, not only did we die to our old way of life, but we're alive. Do you know how important that is? That's incredibly important. Because the life of Jesus in us makes it possible for us to live the Christ life as we interact with Him and trust Him. Which leads to the third thing that makes it possible. We've died. That's what Scripture says. Do you believe it? It's what the Bible says is true. And it can be true in your experience. You don't have to sin anymore. You're a new man or a woman in Christ. Because you've been raised from the dead and the life of Christ is in you. You don't have to be a slave of sin. The Bible says before we knew Christ, that's all we could do. We lived in a total state of sin. Even the good things you did were done for selfish motives. But then you come to Christ and all that's changed. It's a possibility to do the things which God would have you to do because He's in you. Remember what Paul says? For to me to live is Christ. So, we are people who have Christ in our life. And even beyond that, look what he says in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed. He's talking about at the second coming. Then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We're going to be revealed with Christ when He comes. He's bringing His saints with Him when we come. People who know Him. We're coming if we die before that time. We're coming with Him. Praise the Lord that we'll be part of that. But... Jesus is our life. Did you ever think of Christ in that way? It's fundamentally important that we see Jesus as our life. He is our life. He's the one who gives us spiritual life. He is the atmosphere in which we live and move and have 
our being. And we are in union with Christ. Now, we're getting to the very bottom line. Now, listen carefully of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Did you notice in this passage of Scripture that twice he uses the phrase with Christ? Did you notice that? We are in union with Christ. This echoes what Jesus teaches in John 15, where he says, I am the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. And he says, every branch in me that bears fruit is a person who is, and I'm interpreting here, who trusts in me and depends totally on me. And the life of me, the vine, comes through that branch and bears fruit. This is the Christian life. We're dead to sin. We've been raised to new life by the power of Christ. Christ is our life because we are in union with Christ. Here's what we have to do. Let me just make a statement and then I'll finish with this. The statement is this. We have to do what we can do in order for us to receive the power that God only can give to do that which we cannot do. There's so much we can't do. In fact, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But this is the one thing you and I can do. We can put ourselves in a position to receive the power of Christ in our lives to do what He called us to do. And this is how this works. In this passage, there are two commands to us. What is the first command? Keep seeking. Keep seeking things above. Isn't that what it says in verse 1? Where Christ is, seated with God at the right hand of God. The right hand of God, whenever you encounter it in the Bible, it has to do with a place of authority and power. And so, if I keep on seeking the Lord, the Bible says, seek me and live, God says in the book of Amos. Seek me and live. In Isaiah 55, 6, the Bible says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. There's an urgency that should be part of your life. If you understand this truth that we're looking at today, you will be urgent about your seeking the Lord. It won't be an on-again, off-again deal. It'll be something you will want to do every day. Otherwise, your life is going to be lived for things that won't last. Your life will be a wash. God forbid that would be true of you or me. If Christ is in us, the potential is there. To have a life that lasts. Keep on seeking. But also it says, set your mind. And that is a present tense command. Keep on setting your mind on things above. And there are always distractions. What about you? Last night after the service, I was talking to two of the brothers here. We would had a great time last night. And one of the brothers is a St. Louis Cardinal fan just like me. The other brother is, he's what I would call uninterested totally in sports. And... I was talking to my other friend. We're, we're just going on and on about the St. Louis Cardinals and all that. And then my other brother said, You love sports, don't you, Mike? Ooh. I thought, wow. I need to preach that sermon tomorrow to me. Because <laughs> it's true. And you have your things you love. Do you know you can love your ministry, whatever it is, more than you can love the Lord? Love, I'll just speak to me. Mike, you can love your sermon more than you can love your Savior. And I've done that before, believe it or not. 
want to impress people more than expressing the truth. I don't care what your ministry is. It can be a God. It can be things that are on earth. It can be of the world because it will be a means by which you can boast about your accomplishments. Sometimes we sort of dress that up in a way that we kind of help people think we're real spiritual, you know? So, we set our minds on things above. We have to have constant adjustment. I don't care who you are. The temptation is always there. The pull of the flesh is always downward. The pull of the world is always downward. And we need to respond to the invitation of the Lord today. Listening to the words of the prophet Elijah. That's a great story, isn't it? Unbelievable. What a man. And what were his words to the people of Israel who had assembled there? For a show, probably. It was a showdown, for sure. But probably for a show. What was his message? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. What was he saying? We cannot straddle the fence. We love to straddle the fence. We want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. It just won't work. We have to ask the Lord, Lord, please help me to keep my eyes on You. You're seated above. It's You at the right hand of the Father who empowers me to do the things I'm incapable of doing which will bring glory to You, Lord. How does this work? The Bible says, Do not be conformed to this world, things on earth, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How does this work? Well, very simply, it has to do with my bringing myself in a situation where my mind can be formed, transformed into the mind of Christ. And that is by being a man or a woman who puts oneself in a position to hear the Lord speak to us through His Word. Any other avenue is an inferior avenue than to expose yourself to God's Word so that you can memorize it and you can meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, and only then, will you or I be prosperous and successful. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we admit to you that we too often are people who are worldly as opposed to being people who are spiritually inclined. So we ask you, Lord, for a fresh start today. Thank you that you are willing to give us a fresh start if and when we are willing to admit our absolute need for You and also admit that we can't do anything that will matter forever except through You. So we're asking You, Holy Spirit, to fill us today. Jesus, take control of us in a new way. We want to say, be our Lord 
and not just our Savior. We ask this in Your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.